0: Hello and welcome to The Leaderverse with your hosts, Drew Lee, Lucas Sheridan, and me, Jesse Button. Today, we unravel the extraordinary life of a man whose wisdom left an indelible mark on the world of business and leadership and beyond. He was the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, a billionaire investor, and the right-hand man to the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. Today, we turn our spotlight on the remarkable journey of Charlie Munger. Today on The Leaderverse.
1: Welcome to the Leaderverse podcast where we talk about authenticity, the challenges, the trials, the tribulations, the ups and downs, and the sidewayses, uh, sidewayses if that's a word, in leadership. So this week, we, we've we had an um, unexpected, of course anything like this is, we had an unexpected passing of one of the pioneers i think in business and it's hard to say someone's a pioneer at this you know in the 2000 era but charlie munger passed away yesterday at the age of 99 and still basically got up and went to work every day and someone who you know builds a company that is the size scheme um and and the the worth overall the net worth of of a company as big as berkshire hathaway I almost think it's it's fitting that we do something to talk about the legacy of Charlie Munger. While well, at the same time, who better would represent a podcast about authentic and transparent leadership than somebody like Charlie? Him and him and Buffett were, you know, essentially they were partners in, you know, in Berkshire Hathaway. And if you know anything about the history of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is a company that, in all actuality, shouldn't exist. There's a there's a uh, an interview, um, you can actually find on Amazon. There was an Amazon interview with Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, had Charlie Munger on there, and um, he said that you know the fact that Berkshire Hathaway even exists, it was an accident, because if the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway Hadn't attempted to cheat Warren Buffett out of an eighth of the company, there wouldn't have been a Buffett. There wouldn't have been a Munger. There wouldn't have been a Berkshire Hathaway. Essentially, you know, Berkshire Hathaway was was a company way back in the nineteen fifties. It had actually, I think, it originally was was founded all the way back in the eighteen hundreds, the late eighteen hundreds, and it was a manufacturing company. And you know, it had been it had been a very successful company. Uh, obviously, any company that's going to be around for you know hundred plus years, uh, obviously has some goods or has something that's worth something. But in 1962, you know Warren Buffett Buffett is really great at something. He he looks at companies and he looks at things and he looks at what is undervalued, and that's that's how he's kind of you know he gets so much credit for. You know, being a sophisticated investor, the thinking time—he's—he's he's almost kind of like this iconic, almost you know, larger than life Superman superhero figure in the world of investing. But one, he didn't do it alone. Uh, they really were partners, and their 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 superpower was in the collaboration that went along with with building the company. And one thing that they both said is, "I I do what I call my circle of competence." I stay within that circle. I don't worry about things outside the circle. So they're really clear on what they know and what they don't. So they stay within the circle of competence. And circle of confidence is they understand financial institutions. You look at some of their major acquisitions over time. They've made a lot of money in Wells Fargo. They've made a lot of money in American Express. They laid a, mo- a lot of money in Coca-Cola. They look for companies that what they call has a moat around it. While there may be, for example, there may be Coca-Cola and there may be Pepsi, they're fairly iconic. You don't really tend to think of a third or a fourth or a fifth software, you know, or a soft drink, right? We don't talk, we don't think about a third or a fourth or a fifth soft drink in the iconic of like, all right, what's the two most popular brands of soft drink, Coke and Pepsi? You go to a restaurant, you say, can I get a Coke? Can I get a Dr. Pepper? And they say, something silly like well we only have Pepsi why does any why do you only have Pepsi why does anybody have Pepsi but that's a whole different sidebar but they the two iconic companies are Coke and Pepsi you would describe that company as it has a moat around it there's not a lot of competitors they pretty much own the space that they're in companies like Apple IBM Intel when you think of a specific company at one point in time BlackBerry And I'm not saying they invested BlackBerry. I'm just saying when you look at a company that has a strong hold on an industry or a stronghold, it's almost like a castle with a moat around it. It has really smart people and there's not a lot of competitors that are challenging to take over. Think of a company like that today. Like, for example, um, you know, we don't call it tissue paper for the most part. What do we call it? Kleenex. Kleenex. I mean, that is a brand of tissue paper. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know about you it's just like i i don't even know what kind of ear swab we use but i just call it a q-tip
0: Great. last time you cut yourself did you put a plastic strip over your <laughs> finger did you get a band-aid i love this game
1: and and, and i don't even know if it was band-aid <laughs> right but there's there are companies like that that represent such an iconic symbol of their product or their service. And those were the type of companies that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger really looked for because they understood their span of confidence. So Warren Buffett was very good at understanding what is a company, what does a company do, what does a company make, and what is a company worth? And what he looked for is companies that were statistically undervalued he bought stock in these companies that he said they're worth more than their current or advertised stock price so he ended up buying stock in a company called berkshire hathaway after he noticed it was statistically undervalued he bought the stock it was it, it was you know textile mills it did a lot of different things and you know eventually you know buffett acknowledged that the textile business was kind of waning and the financial situation was not going to improve, so in 1964, um, they were they were going to essentially sell off the company. There was an offer to buy Buffett's stake in the company, eleven and a half dollars per share. Uh, Buffett agreed to the deal, and a few weeks later, Warren Buffett received an offer in writing. The tender offer was eleven and three eighths, so eleven and a half or eleven and three eighths. And it, essentially, it pissed him off. Long story short, when Tarley Munger tells the story, he said, you know, we wouldn't be here if somebody hadn't attempted, you know, hadn't um, changed things. And the chairman hadn't tried to cheat him out of an eighth. We wouldn't have been here. We never would be a Berkshire Hathaway. So when you make a deal, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this as a leader, make a deal. Stick to the deal because you may rightfully piss somebody off and they may go on to be the greatest investor the world has ever seen and become worth billions of dollars just out of sheer spite. Sometimes people win and succeed because they want something. And sometimes people win and succeed just out of sheer spite, drive, determination or approve. It's great when you hire people who have a chip on their shoulder. It's not so great when you're the one who put the chip on the shoulder and they go work for your competitor. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. we've all had experiences where we've worked for different companies. Uh, one is one is pretty, you know, infamous that has a reputation for it it when people leave, they don't just leave and go off into that good night. They rage against the dying of the light. They come out swinging they come out with chips on their shoulder they come out with something to prove Mm -hmm. and in some cases some of these individuals go on to build adversarial competitors that are equally as successful Mm -hmm. so as a leader you've got to be really careful on making a deal sticking to a deal so you don't end up creating your own competitor your own adversary or somebody that eventually takes you out or ends up buying you over time So that's kind of the the quick short story. Berkshire Hathaway was a textile company. It was undervalued. Warren Buffett decided to invest in said company. Then as the textile business was going down, it was an offer to buy. And when the letter came, it was less than the original offer in the agreement they made. A deal was a deal. They violated the deal. Warren kept the company. The rest is kind of history. So one of the things that Charlie Munger was infamous or famous for is he had an insatiable desire to continue to learn. You know, people that work with him at the corporate headquarters would describe him as a book on legs, a book with two legs, because he always had a book with him. He was a lifetime learner. He said, you know, keep trying to improve your life throughout your life. Always work to get smarter, always work to improve, always work to learn always work to get better. I mean, isn't that something that each and every one of us could do?
0: Mhm.
1: I mean, that's not a great science, right? There's nothing secretive about that. He said without the a, the method of learning, you're like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, it's just not going to work very well. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look at some of the several of the quotes and you look at Charlie Munger's story, you'll realize that there is he could be the poster child for authentic leadership.
0: I've never heard that one before. A one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. That's a good one. That's a really good one. So this he said, I think
1: they said, I think that a life properly lived is just learn, learn, learn all the time.
0: And this article lists his largest gift was a $200 million pledge to the University of California at Santa Barbara back in 2016, mostly to build new residence halls for undergraduates. Um, but he donated over $550 million, mostly around education, universities, to charity over his lifetime.
1: You know, I think, I th- I think even his bigger philanthrop- you know philanthropic activities, whereas he went on to become a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, he he is he has taught at several universities. Uh he donated sixty-five million to the um Kavli. I'm gonna I'm gonna mispronounce that K-A-V-L-I. How uh-huh. do you it the Kavli okay. Institute for Theoretical Physics? 65 okay. million there. University of California, Santa Barbara, largest gift in school history. He furthered two hundred million gift to UC Santa Barbara, as you said. You know he was he was constantly giving, but you know what? He, look what he was giving to education. Mm-hmm. Quote after quote after quote. His his common denominator is always be learning, always be giving, always be educating.
0: Munger was a straight shooter, very dry sense of humor, and Berkshire Hathaway shareholders saw his personality on display at the company's annual meetings in Omaha every year where he and Buffett fielded questions for hours and hours on end. Often, Buffett would answer questions at length, and then Munger would chime in with something uh, or like a perfect one-liner, it says, and the audience would always rare, would always roar. But they he followed a concept of keeping everything simple so or as simple as possible. So he says a quote from Munger, I can't think of an, a single example in my whole life where keeping it simple has worked against me, which it makes, it makes so much sense. He says that way, when you make mistakes, they really aren't because we kept it simple.
1: Well, it, it, you know, the, they call it the Munger approach to, di- to thinking, and and it's difficult to imitate because... You know, many of us overcomplicate the simple. We take something that's fairly simple and we'll add 20 steps to it. John A. Cuff in his book, Finish described this as the person who says, My goal today is to clean out my garage. Well, if I'm going to clean out my garage, there are some items of value in this garage. You know what? If there are items of value in this garage, maybe I should sell this. You know what? I should have a garage sale. Well, if I'm going to have a garage sale, then I need to accurately price all of the items. I'm going to need stickers. I'm going to need to write down the pricing. I'm going to need to put stickers on all of these things. I'm going to need a license. I need to know when I'm going to do the open house or, or the, or the uh, garage sale. I need to check the weather for the day that I'm going to do the garage sale. I need to advertise. I need to get a banner. How many steps have I just added to, I'm going to clean out the garage? And Charlie Munger was one of those people that said, you know, what is the secret of quickly removing the cobwebs from your mind or what's the secret to success? And he just simply said, I'm rational. Those two words, I'm rational. Oh, cool. So when you ask about authenticity, I'm going to read some quotes from Charlie Munger that I think really describes how authentic somebody can be in in those one liners you he, he said it's it is remarkable how much long term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent my favorite all-time business book is the book by Keith Cunningham called The Road Less Stupid. And he describes that we don't need to make more smart decisions or intelligent decisions. We need to make fewer dumb ones or stupid ones. He said, I try to get rid of people who always confidential or conf- I always... I, I try to get rid of people who always confidently answer questions about which they don't have any real knowledge. I always say I want to know where I would die so I can never go there.
0: (laughs) That one took a second, but yeah.
1: (laughs) I wonder if he went there. So, you know, he said, take a simple idea and take it seriously. And there's over and over again, this common thread that said, I think Warren and I know the edge of our competency better than other people do. And they didn't stray outside that level of competency. You know, you didn't see three, four years ago, them buying digital art in blockchain. Uh, They were very heavily criticized back in the 2000s in the dot-com bubble. Because they didn't heavily invest in dot coms and the IPOs. And Warren flat out said he was the more outspoken of the two. Charlie, you'd get a one line answer. Warren, you might get a book when the two of them spoke, which is one reason, you know, Warren Buffett is, uh, I think, far more credited in popularity than Charlie Munger, but they were both equally. I think as brilliant. And you, you couldn't have one without the other. It's like Abbott without Costello, Laurel without Hardy. They really did come as a package pair and their secret was in their collaboration together, but they took really, really simple concepts and they didn't deviate outside of their circle of understanding or competency. So when the 2000 dot com was going on and all of this money was to be made There wasn't necessarily value in those companies. So when Warren and they were analyzing the dot coms, they looked at them and said, I don't see it. I don't understand it. I don't know how there's value there. You got companies that were, you know, they went from $13 a share to $87 a share in a 24 hour period during that era. And they looked and said, they sell vacation. They don't even sell vacations. They don't actually own anything. They sell access to information that makes travel easier and therefore this company is supposedly valued at x i don't see it and then later they were really justified in their way of looking at things when the dot-com bubble burst you know nfts bitcoin and a lot of you know cryptocurrency and for you crypto fans out there just 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 a generic statement whether it you understand it or whether you don't, I personally don't understand it well enough to venture into that area. So I follow Buffetology and I look at people like Charlie Munger and say, okay, I know what I know and I know what I don't. And I can go get really smart in the areas that I'm not educated now, or I could get even smarter where I have a head start and just improve that and stay in my circle of competence.
0: Mm-hmm. I- what
1: can every one of us do? that they did really well learn and learn how to value the undervalued items in life whether it be stock mutuals real estate businesses all of these are duplicatable and different in our own individual ways
0: I think about how many leaders got uh, lost in this, in this trap? How do you think it felt for Charlie and for Warren to be very aware of this dot-com boom? Likely all of the advice in the world they were getting was like, you're going to get left behind if you don't, right? You're going to get left behind. You've got to get into this or everything's going to disappear. But they were able to stand strong enough and value what it was that they don't know. That's not my space. I don't see the value. I don't understand it. So in an ode to simplicity, I'm going to stick with what I, I'm going to stick with what I know here. Yeah. That's somebody else's investment, not theirs. I get that. I would imagine that felt, I would be in that trap. I would have, I would have sunk a bunch of money into something that I did not understand and it wouldn't have felt right.
1: Well, and and if you won, you would have gotten lucky because it would have been uneducated. And if you lost, you would have been unlucky and it still would have been uneducated. Yep. Charlie Munger gave three simple rules. Rules for success, rules for life. These basic rules is what he credits with making him successful. He said Buffett had all three. Number one, don't sell anything you wouldn't buy yourself. The safest way to get what you want is to deserve what you want. And the simple idea, and the golden rule is if you want to deliver something to the world, well, deliver something that you would buy if you were on the other end. Number two, don't work for anyone you don't respect and admire. Leaders and fellow leaders, listening to the leaderverse, are you being somebody worthy of respect and admiration? How do you show up every day where others would want to emulate and use you as an example versus an example of what not to do. I've had the privilege of working with leaders that I would follow and say, I'm going to do exactly what they did, which has helped. I've also been fortunate enough to work for leaders that when I question some of my decisions, I sometimes revert to them and say, what would they do in the same exact situation so I can do the opposite? So be the person that's worthy of respect and admiration and don't work for someone that you don't respect and admire. Number three, work only with people you enjoy. That's not so easy, but as a business leader, if you walk out of a meeting and your energy is drained, who took it? You should walk out of a meeting in collaboration where you walk out with just as much, if not even more energy, because as a leader, you walk into a room, I expect there are more people in the room than you were. You walk into a room, unless it's by yourself, there's at least another human being or multiple human beings in that room, which means arguably the collaboration effect of all of those people in that room, you should walk away more energized from the cumulative effect than and walk away de-energized because what does that say about the room that you were just in? There are 10 people in the room and you walk away with less energy than you came in it with? What happened? I imagine that would be like walking in to a room filled with mosquitoes Mm -hmm. or going to get a blood transfusion or giving blood at the Red Cross and you walk away more de-energized than you came in. You physically lost something. To work with people that you enjoy.
0: I love that one. Love that one. I think of um, John Gordon and the energy bus, right? Mm -hmm. And it just takes one person and it's always the leader. (laughs) That's right. You can fix it.
1: What do they say? Speed of the leader, speed of the pack? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. The energy of the leader, the mm-hmm. energy of the pack. you get to create not the people that are around you, but you do get to choose them. And you really do affect them, whether you're, whether you're meaning to or not, but your energy, your attitude and your internal thought processes as a leader are contagious.
1: When I watched the Netflix or when I watched the Amazon special that had Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett in an open conversation, and it had different interviews with them over the years the two things that really struck out, he said, when it comes to investing, if you're emotional about investing, you probably won't do well. You may have all of these feelings about the stock or the investment, and yet the stock has no feelings about you. The other one was, the world is a great movie to watch, but don't, but you don't want to sleepwalk through life. The important thing to do is look for the job you would take if you didn't need a job life is wonderful then so 99 years old leaving a lasting impact never stop learning work with people that you like that you like and do work you fundamentally enjoy he had some great quotes he had some great one liners everyone that ever met him described him in that way of of authenticity that you never know what he was going to say. He was very quick-witted. And I think a lot of that was just a result of his insatiable desire to always learn. I like it.